Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is AI and the future of supply chain with my friend, Dr. Yossi Sheffi. Yossi is the director of the world-famous MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics. He is a very, very bright man. He's an expert in systems optimization, risk and resilience, and supply chain management. Today we discuss, I think it's his ninth book, and it's called The Magic Conveyor Belt, Supply Chain AI and the Future of Work. If you want to see where the future of supply chain is going, listen up. Yossi knows. But... Before we get to the interview, I want to tell you about my friends over at Port X Logistics. Port X Logistics is an asset-based transportation company, and they specialize in containerized freight. So if you're having trouble moving your cargo out of the port, very common problem, then reach out to my friends over at Port X Logistics, and their website is portxlogistics.com. They're experienced, and they offer service at every single port, and every single rail ramp in the United States and Canada. They have an approach that is guided by their four pillars, which is culture, service, tech, and trucks. Again, check them out over at portxlogistics.com. So how's it going, Yossi? All right. Thank you very much for having me. Very excited. But guys, in in case you've been living under a rock and not doing your supply chain studies, Yossi is one of the leaders in our space. He's written how many books? My ninth book just came out last week. So we could talk for the next, for the rest of my life and not cover all the topics, but we'll talk about your current book. But please introduce yourself and where you work and where you're calling from today. Okay, so uh, the easy first, I'm calling from Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's from the uh, my office at the MIT campus. I'm the head of the MIT Center for Transportation Logistics, which is a large interdepartmental center at MIT. The center does has several parts. It has an education program. We give, we give a, a graduate degrees. The center has, a, of course, a large research program. The center has its own relationship with industry. It has what we call the supply chain exchange. It's 50 companies who are members of the center, help fund the center, work with our students. And the center is something else unique. We have five centers around the world in Colombia, in Spain, in uh, Luxembourg, China, and Malaysia that are what you might call franchises. They are centers that are, we build them and we help them hire their own faculty, get the students, so and we run the whole thing as a network. So that's kind of what I do in my spare time. Yeah, and I think anybody who looks at the, and I always say with those rankings, you never know what goes into them anymore, but I think anytime you see rankings of top supply chain schools or logistics schools and i don't know if, uh, how we categorize these anymore mit is always right up there and by the way i'm close by to michigan state i know they would always claim to be on those lists too great school absolutely and i love what mit's done i just spoke not so long ago with chris Kaplis, and oh what i love about what he said is at mit we have a real mission not only to do teach but also be part of industry and and I think in the past, we always looked at, well, there's academics, and then there's the people who are doing the real work. That line has completely blurred. <laughs> that line is, is completely blurred. I, uh, I had five successful startups 
you know so i was i left mit for a year started a startup then installed management came back to mit did it five times so and then also all were successful all sold many of my case studies are from stuff that i actually did rather than reading a book about it and chris is absolutely right chris by the way his office is right behind this wall so it's <laughs> it right. right here and by the way i think he's the chief data scientist over at dat so when he says they're involved with industry it's not just words it is the truth absolutely and we have as i mentioned 50 companies who are funding research our students for example part of our our mentality our students have to work on a real problem if they cannot just invent the problem and just work on it they have to get data from a real company work on a real problem and hopefully solve a real problem but that's that's what they do for the thesis so there's nothing, you know, they can use the most advanced theory, they can use artificial intelligence, machine learning, and, and blockchain, whatever they want, but they have to solve a problem, not just not just to play with the technology. So we'll get into the, by the way, we're going to talk about your new book, but hold your new book up if you don't mind, for those who are watching sure. the video, hold it up. <laughs> so it is uh, The Magic Conveyor Belt, Supply Chain AI and the Future of Work. I had to shorten it to the AI and Future of Supply Chain for the title, but I love that. I love that. We'll put that in the link to in the show notes. We'll talk about that. But first, that is not a Brooklyn accent. That is not a Southern accent. That is from somewhere else. Tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you got, and I know you've got a long career, especially with all those books, but give us the, give us the back of the napkin bullet points on all of those points. Well, I did my undergraduate in Israel at the Technion, which is the Israeli Institute of Technology. I did my master and PhD at MIT and became a faculty member at MIT. I started working on uh, my main studies were in operation research, applied mathematics and operation research. And a lot of my early work had to do with urban transportation and urban planning. In fact, my first book was called Urban Urban Transportation Network, Equilibrium Analysis with Mathematical Programming Method. So it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> it was it was for PhD students at MIT based on my course. But I got frustrated because I thought I have better ways of running cities or transportation cities. And this is not something that people were listening to because it's, it's mostly a political process. So I started applying many of the same methods to trucking networks and rail networks and lo and behold i really did something good people actually wanted to use it because it saved it saved costs it improved customer service from there i started working with uh, retailers with uh, retailers manufacturer distributors about supply chain issue on uh, on procurement manufacturing distribution all the stages in uh, in supply chain so that's where we got to where we got. As I mentioned before, in the process, I started five companies. I started the whole, it's, it's my MIT center. It's not only from MIT. It's our center's international expansion. There's a big online program that we have. In fact, we had the, in November last year, we had the one millionth registrant to our program, which is kind of, kind of mind-boggling because it's, a, you know, it's, it started when we did, you know, when we opened our um, international expansions was in response to, to industry. They, asked, they said, we need more people. So instead of graduating 40 students a year, we started graduating 200, 250 students a year. People say, it's still a joke. It's nothing. We need thousands. So that's where we started the online program, which gets to uh, literally 
hundreds of thousands of people. And I, right, I can take these classes. I think Chris told me I can take these for free. Oh, yes. The knowledge is free. Not the degree. The knowledge is free. <laughs> You're absolutely right. That's part of the philosophy behind it. If you just want the knowledge, and a lot of people do, by all means, it's yours. If you need the degree and you want to take some exams in the process so we can test on the knowledge and all this, you pay, but cheap. again, <laughs> when you say you, you say $200 per course or five courses and final exam, it, it's really not, not much. I'm so, not just saying this to be nice. It's, I think this is the God's honest truth. MIT has always been a leader in engineering and in tech, so many, so many tech innovations. But I think now it feels as if MIT is one of the leaders in saying we have to remake higher education into something that doesn't go from 18 to 22 and focus mostly on partying and college football, by the way, which I love both those things. <laughs> I understand, but I, I actually couldn't agree with you more. Not only this, I think too many people go to college. I mean, we need to, one of the things that I recommended in my book is the German system of dual education. When people go for three and a half, four years, they spend half the time at the company and half the time it's so antiquated in college. And, it's, uh, and they come out and they have experience. They are immediately useful to the company. I got to tell you, I had a different experience myself. I went one year away to college and great school. I went to Northwood University. And then I came home. My dad owned an engineering business. And I went to work at his company. And I was a draftsman. By the way, kids look it up <laughs> online. <laughs> it was what we did before the CAD systems. But I worked and went to school at night. And I did go eventually on these CAD systems. And then I worked myself into engineering. And I got my master's degree in education and my undergrad in business. But at my master's, I think I finished when I was 37, 38 years old. I had taken more technical classes than business classes or even education classes, which is my master's is in. And yet you don't get credit for that. Like learning to do all the things I did on CAD systems, learning to develop parts for automotive, which I've released hundreds of parts as engineer and designer. So much of it was like technical training. And I almost say it's almost like apprenticeship. Exactly. And to say that's not worth it, and by the way, and no criticism to my beloved University of Michigan, but I remember trying to transfer credits from some of these things to university. And they're like, we have no... You can't. There's nothing that transfers. And that was always like, are you kidding me? But also, going to school at night and working all day, as much as I hated it, night school has the best students because you're at work all day. Let me tell you, let me tell you something. We have students, part of our online program, people take five courses. It's a, it's a semester worth at MIT. They can come, the top people can come to MIT and get masters in one semester. When we compare, we had the uh, MIT has the learning lab, which is independent of us. It's part of MIT central, uh, central administration. Compare the performance of these blended students to the regular students. The blended right. students are much better because, because what it takes, people forget that what it takes is not only being smart. Everybody at MIT is smart, but it's the tenacity and the willpower. If you studied at night MIT level courses online, you really want We were it. also just, you, I would say maturity. I was a different person at 18 when I got out of high school than when I was 38 when I got out of University of Michigan. So I love what you guys are doing. So let's switch gears. Let's talk about that book. So you've written a lot of books, but the last one is Supply Chain, AI, and the Future of Work. So what is this book about? 
Okay, so this book starts by describing supply chain because people always ask me after the pandemic, people you know say, ah, oh, you work in supply chain. What is it? It's amazing how many people heard the term but don't know what what's involved. So the first thing is kind of explaining how complex, how global, what what it is. Then the, then I talk about the technology and the use of supply chain in general, the march of technology, and tie to this how people. Over the ages, we're always afraid of technology is going to take jobs and sometimes became violent and then ended up with what's the future of job with a, a, AI. So I go over the, in the various industrial revolutions and start with the, you know, mechanizing the looms in Britain in, in the 1700, 1800 and how the Luddite, as they call it, were, were smashing the loom. Oh, and yeah, got... the Luddites didn't like tech. They still don't. I think there's still Luddites out there, right? <laughs> Yes, big listeners of my podcast, by the way. The yes, the original, the original Luddite. I mean, they were they were being shot at by the by the British police, and then by the way, hundreds of them were sent to Australia, which penal by colony <laughs> at that time is a penal colony, and they are now they are now look they now look like the people that came from the Mayflower in the United States. The original, <laughs> they are you know royalty now. Or their, you know, their descendants are a royalty. But 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 it, it it happened throughout. It happened when Ford put the uh, you know the assembly line. There were all these uh, you know violent uh, demonstration against Ford, and people were shot at the Ford Ford police and the, and the Detroit police were shooting them. So people are not shooting each other anymore over this. But the anxiety exists and is growing with the new AI. So I try to suggest a position that one should not be overly anxious about it actually i'm by the way i grew up in dearborn michigan and so i also my dad worked at ford all my a lot of so many of my family members worked at ford and I'm, by the way i was in dearborn yesterday love that place still i live not too far and i spent most of my career early career in automotive and i joke about this but it's no joke i got a call from a recruiter and this is in the 90s and he said you know i've got this client and they have a real problem and they need a good supply chain guy like you and I was like, what do they need? He goes, supply chain. And I remember writing it down and just circling it. And he said, kept saying supply chain. And I was like, I don't know what this is. But meanwhile, I was working in automotive, <laughs> which I'll say is one of the biggest, baddest supply chains on earth. But we didn't call ourselves supply chain. I worked in engineering. Of course. And, and we were developing vehicles in Asia, China at that time. And I remember thinking, I don't know what a supply chain is. So I called a friend who was another recruiter and I said, what is the supply chain? He goes, what you do? I go, this is engineering. And he goes, no, well, you know, you work with suppliers. That's the supply chain. And I remember thinking for a long time, we had manufacturing and I think we had purchasing and then purchasing might have supplier development and supplier quality, uh, you know, for the larger firms. And we obviously had logistics, but we never looked at this. Yeah. And by the way, if you look at the way the practices within, say, McKinsey or Ernst & Young and all these firms, they would have operations, manufacturing, logistics, procurement, and they didn't have it split out until recently. Then they split it and called it supply chain and logistics. Now they have logistics as a separate and supply chain, which it kind of shows you how much sophistication is going into these they, that MIT has a degree in supply chain and probably didn't until the 90s I'm guessing and now we know this everybody knows what the supply chain is now after the pandemic 
the degree, our, our degree was the first, the first interdepartmental degree of anything at MIT, and it's exactly 25 years old now. So you can you can calculate and it exactly. I, I could, if I could say one more thing, I spoke at a, a small university by my house not so long ago about Ford Motor Company, and and it was it was really talking about the evolution we've seen in automotive, and Henry Ford at one time after he got really successful with this assembly line, he said, we are going to have a complete vertical integration of, and he didn't call it a supply chain, of all the stuff provided. And the sure. idea was the raw materials come in one end and finished cars go out the other. Yeah. And the, now you... The River Rouge plant. Yep. Yep. And and you look at where we're at today, that seems ludicrous now because they have their suppliers, their tier one suppliers, are some of the largest companies in the world. And this is not just Ford, all automotive companies. And we've completely changed the way we look at it. And it used to be manufacturing was king of automotive. We call automotive a manufacturing business. We could just as easily call it a supply chain business. Well, it's now, it's now an assembly business, supply chain and assembly. You know, a lot of the manufacturing is done by suppliers. Yeah, and, and I think it's funny. You call Apple their tech business. Uh, Dell Computer is a tech business. But they're doing kind of the same thing. They have suppliers, and then they do the final assembly themselves. And they put it in their box. And <laughs> Well, Apple doesn't even do the final yeah, that's assembly. Right. That's right. <laughs> Dell does the final assembly. Apple does not. Apple does not. Who does it? Foxconn do that for them? Foxconn and several others. And, you know, if you think about Xbox, Microsoft, no, Flex is doing it for them. It's not. They just do the marketing. They do the selling, but they're not making it. Interesting, interesting. So I took you a little off track here. So back to this, back to this book. So I know we're going to talk a little bit about AI, artificial intelligence. How is that going to impact our future of work and of the supply chains we work in? So first of all, let's just uh, understand that it's with us already every day. When you when you look at uh, you know robots moving on Amazon and not running into each other and bringing the right stuff to the right place, there's always infused with AI you know how to do it. The robots learn, in fact, as they work. So it, this already exists. And when you talk to a chatbot online who give you answer and try to converse it, but there's an AI machine behind it. Fine. So it, it exists. However. What we have now, the, the, so AI was developing for a long time. We started, originally we called it expert system and it started developing. The, the development that was released by OpenAI in November last year was starting to own a hockey stick. This became, as you say, things going, developing slowly, 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 and suddenly there's a breakthrough. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I mentioned that before we hit record that that's in my, in my lifetime, I've watched this many times where technology... It, you hear about it, but you don't know. It made no sense for my wife to have a cell phone because she didn't work. And then all of a sudden, she has a cell phone and my kids have cell phones where you're like, man, that happened fast. <laughs> no, but here, here this, this AI has a chance of changing society in many ways, for good or bad. And I hope mainly for good. But you have a program like ChatGBT and, and many others who can write a poem, write write a book, write whatever. You can write code. Write code, developing art, developing music, writing videos. All of this is done, use what's called large language model, large machine learning model, 
And uh, this is something new. I don't know if you had the chance to play with some of these. I have played with ChatGPT. By the way, on my podcast, when somebody's on my podcast, and I'll ask you, Yossi, when we're done, please send me your bio, 100, 150 words, and then send me your company profile, MIT, you know, whatever you want, probably a profile of your book. And a lot of times I get these and I look and go, oh, this isn't that good. And so I got in the habit of just cutting and pasting in the chat GPT. I don't even ask chat GPT to improve this. It just rewrites it. And by the way, it it's rewriting it with guidelines that makes it better English than you or I can write in. It doesn't know anything about your book, but it will write in English that is, I, I suspect I could ask right now, I could just say, give me 10 bullet points, pertinent bullet points about Yossi Sheffi's book, Supply Chain AI in the Future. And it would spit it out in like that. And I could put that in the show notes. And I've done that. Yeah, but this this means that uh, this something, the thing that changed is that now all this generative and I create anxiety among knowledge workers, among people who write, among people who, it's a, uh, this is something new I mean, because we never had this before. Knowledge workers, whether they were in engineers. You'd have to worry. We, we, we outsource manufacturing work, and in a lot of ways we said, well, you got to go to school if you want a good job, <laughs> right? <laughs> and now? <laughs> no, but I, I, I actually don't think that one should be too anxious because there's a lot still. First of all, it's far from perfect. This it's ChatGPT hallucinate gives bad, bad answer, invent stuff. Okay, if you try to write something substantial, it will give you references that don't exist. Just make them up. Which means that there will be always a job for the humans to look over the ChatGPT. And to me, what raises, we talked before about the German system of, uh, you know, going to school half the time in a company, half the time apprenticeship, half the time at, at the school. Let me come back to this because the only problem that I see, or the main problem that I see, is hiring. Is starting jobs because what you need in order to oversee the chat GPT and, and whatever other the robotics and all of this, you need experience. How do you hire people with five or 10 year experience? What well, you cannot. I mean, you hire people right of school, they have no experience. So, I suggest one of the things that I suggest, I have a, a list of suggestions how to deal with what's coming is to change the American system to be closer to the German system when people go to school or trade school and side by side, they actually work as apprentices. They come out after four years, they know what they're doing, they have experience. So it goes towards solving, solving the issue. People understand the machinery and can know what are the limitations of the machinery. But, but there's also a lot of other things. You know, we know that the, the machines are good at certain things. They can do repetitive jobs over and over again very well. Robots. But the machines do not have any empathy or moral code or risk tolerance. Or it, it, there are lots of human qualities. Just example to give you. During the pandemic, we found out that several companies created collaborations on the fly. Within a week, thousands of people were moving from one company to another just, just to help. This cannot be done with machines because this requires one CEO to call his friend, the other CEO, right. and, and say, forget the lawyers, let's just move it. And people happen. Many of the, I, I was working with uh, Moderna at the time when they're developing, and there were so many collaboration between scientists, between competitors about in, in the development of, of the vaccine. This, this, 
it's hard to imagine that this is happening because you know the machine understand that you have to make profit you have to be competitive and suddenly you tell them no things things are changed so having the machine cannot have a context that's where so i i i'm less uh, anxious let me give you one one last thought the anxiety a lot of the anxiety come from the fact that we know the jobs that may be lost we know the people who are in this job they are our friends our family the people that we know we don't want we don't know all the new jobs that will be created the new industries yeah. that will be created we just don't know example let me just give you one one example of this you talked about ford ford came up with the assembly line and it used to be the teams of uh, artisans really used to make a car and then they move and make another car and then came the production line it simplified the work significantly but it also reduced the price of cars so what was the impact first of all ford employment were from several thousand to 150,000 during the height of the model t but this was not the big impact the big impact was because car prices went down everybody started having car we started having highways and motels and restaurants a whole new industry sprung from almost nothing because people started driving but who would have connected this to the assembly line i mean I, I, so that's why i mean there's a new technology and it may create stuff that uh, that we cannot even imagine Yep. And by the way, guys, I did a job. I was mentioned it earlier. I was a draftsman. I think most people think of like architectural drafting. It's curved. It's It was an extremely time-consuming, very specialized skill set that we had. And I did a draftsman. So I did that work and it was crazy difficult. And then when the CAD systems came, they were $150,000 a station in the late 80s. And you had to buy four. And so it was enormous expense. By the way, we worked on these CAD systems. It felt like we worked in meat lockers. We all wore sweaters all day because it was so cold to keep those things cooled off. Well, then before long, what was on a mainframe went to a PC. And I, and I remember somebody said, I can do the same on this PC. I was like, no, you can't. You need computing power. And he said, yep, I have more computing power on this PC. I said, no, you don't. I, I didn't believe him. It just it made no sense to me. But... The job of draftsman, if you used to walk through Ford or General Motors or Chrysler or Nissan, any of these companies, you would have seen hundreds and hundreds of draftsmen and a dozen engineers. Now, you won't find anybody who's a draftsman. The work gets done better than it ever, but by the way, that work was tedious and boring and I did it and I hated it, <laughs> but I was going to school at night. I'm glad I learned it, but that tedious work that was so difficult is done by a computer now and it's done better and and there's more jobs because of it to your point they're just better jobs you know you know you know what the word computer was used the word computer used to describe a job there was a computer there were companies that had it was women hundreds of women you know desks as far as the eye can see and they used to compute to do you know accounting to do simple financial statement you have to do all the calculations and they used to do it by hand and then somebody checked in and somebody checked the checker and and then it all disappeared right and by the way we were talking about foxconn the other just a minute now we, we foxconn hasn't been in the news lately but when they were in the news they were got bad press in about some of the working conditions of the people in china and i remember reading and they said people were still anxious for the most part to get there because 
they were coming from farms outside of, so they're going to the big city to work in Foxconn. Now for you or I, and maybe for our children, who by the way are very spoiled in this, in the life we have, we would not raise our kids to say, hey, hopefully you can get a good factory job. But my family, my mother's family left the coal mines to come to Detroit to work in in Detroit in the in the factories. My mom said, we thought we were the Beverly Hillbillies. She said, we thought we were rich when we moved from the mines. And she goes, no one dies in the mines. I mean, no one dies in the factories. They died in the mines. And no, in the factories. They and died so in the mines. Now, in the none of the second, third generation, we don't work in the factories. But I guess my point is, is my life better? There's less factory work. Is my life better? Yes, I have a much better life than my grandparents and my parents because the march of technology has just and and, I, and what's the big scary part here yoshi is we don't know what ai can do yet that's the scary part <laughs> yes and and to and to and, and to be fair to be fair fair in this two things first of all you're absolutely right and there are people who are deep into ai who thinks that this is dangerous we should stop for a while and on the other hand on the other hand I'm actually, I'm looking at it differently. The university looking at ChatGPT and say, oh my God, the students don't know how to write. No, to me, it's just like spreadsheets. Before spreadsheets, you want to write a little model, you had to go to a programmer, you had to talk about it. Now you just download the data, you do it yourself. So it's democratizing the whole calculations idea, you know, building a model. So it's just a tool. ChatGPT is a tool. I'm, I'm saying we have to teach our students how to use it well how to write the query correctly, how to analyze it, how to see if it gives you the right answer. So you know, you need to know how to, it's just a tool. So learn how to use it. That's one thing. Another thing why I'm optimistic is that in the early days of the internet, I'm old enough to be there in the early days on the internet. We all thought that this is a wonderful thing. It will bring humanity together. People will communicate with each other. Great. And of course, a lot of business benefit. Turns out we didn't think about identity theft. We didn't think about terrorists talking to each other. We didn't think about any of this. We didn't think about the little girls being unhappy with uh, their lives all of a sudden because they have a phone in their hand. Absolutely. But, but all the main players in AI are now worried about it and creating guardrails. Ah, so, for I like example... It. If if you go to ChatGPT and you say how to make a Molotov cocktails, you say no answer. They're not going to answer. If you say how to lynch somebody, no answer. I mean, so they start putting guardrails on on all of this. Now, the good thing is about all the main players are not only putting guardrails, but they are talking about the future. They are talking about how to do it. So I am a little more optimistic that we are not just marching blindly into the future. And but it's true that this is a technology where even the developers don't a hundred percent understand how it works. So who knows? Yep. So what do you see going forward? Let's just talk about the supply chain. So let's just talk. Let's for just a minute. Let's since we talked a little bit about automotive. Let's talk about the automotive supply chain and how you see AI having an impact in the short term, in the coming years, I should say. Okay, so so some of it is, um, you know, we can already see the, for example, warehouse robotics. Robots are being put into warehouse at a breakneck speed. Everybody's putting robots in warehouse. They're becoming more and more automated. Will become close to totally automated. 
almost dark dark warehouse. Not the big ones, but small ones are becoming dark warehouse. That's one thing. We see autonomous vehicles, autonomous trucks, autonomous, you know, every moving vehicle, whether it's within the warehouse, within the factory, become becomes autonomous. So it'll be autonomous in the roads. I mean, in, indoors before it's in the roads is what you're telling us. Well, it's already autonomous indoors. It's already autonomous. You go to a, you know, many warehouses, you see robots moving around, you know, on their own. It will be, my guess, it will be trucks will be for cars, because, but not everywhere. Trucks going in, uh, in southern United States when the weather is good and the highways are wide. And it's easy, but they'll go. They're not going to go into the city because even getting into Dallas or Fort Worth is not easy. But I think we'll do it on rail first. <laughs> it's really interesting. Yes, rail is uh, should be easier because it's a uh, one-dimensional. You know, it, it should be easier. It's a question of uh, will the um, labor accept it? But but there's also another question whether society will accept it. Let me give you an example. Do you realize that today 777 or 787 is actually a drone? It can fly itself, totally, from the gate to the gate. Would you go on an airplane that has no pilot oh, on it? Oh, no. Yeah. By the way, I heard, I heard somebody say this, is that they could develop a plane right now and say, let's take out the windshield because we don't want the, we don't want the pilots, we don't want that glass to break, right? Let's just say something hit that glass. But just to your point, you know, see, if I go to and say I'm getting on this plane and somebody's, hey, do you notice there's no windshield on that plane? I mean, uh, logically, I know they don't need that windshield to fly, but in my gut, I want the pilot to be able to see. <laughs> oh, the, the, the way they fly today, they still need the... Uh... Yep. So I want to take a quick time out to tell you about my friends over at Lean Solutions Group. Lean Solutions is a nearshore offshore service provider, and they provide a range of services, including operations, technology, marketing, sales, and business process outsourcing. They work with over 500 U.S. transportation and logistics companies. And what they have is this model where they have satellite offices down in Colombia, Guatemala, Mexico, and the Philippines. And their, their approach is real, low cost, low risk, low hassle. They have 9,000 employees now. They're one of the fastest growing companies in America. And again, everybody I know seems to be working with them. But if you're not working with them, check them out. Lean Group, L-E-A-N group.com. And by the way, my podcast is edited by someone from Lean, Lean Solutions Group. They're a fantastic company. I just did an interview with Ron. You know, see, I've said this before to people. Let's check them out. So we have trucks driving down the highway right now. And I know we have some autonomous companies. We have, I've interviewed a few of those guys. And I know we're heading in that direction. But today, the very best truck drivers, they have accidents. And they aren't front page news. People are killed. It's not front page news. When we have an autonomous truck caused by a passenger car, and it'll be front page news worldwide, especially if somebody's killed, and there'll be cries to stop this badness. We don't want this. So I I think the bar is so high on some of the autonomous trucking. And should it be? I don't know. That's somebody else's. That's, well, let the MIT no, no, people no, no, decide no, no. that. Let, <laughs> let, 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 let me give you a historical fact. 
when the first cars, when the first motorized tra transport came about in Chicago, people they had the men working walking with a flag ahead of the car in order to warn the uh, you know the pedestrians. Now we we accepted car with thirty thousand deaths a year. We accepted it. So I will we accept the next one? I don't know, but it's a, it's an adjustment. But we've done it before. We've done it before. We've done it before. So I think we'll do it. So. I have a lot of people on my podcast who say we have been collecting and we've used the term BI for a long time, business intelligence. And that business intelligence was typically us collecting a lot of data because we have transportation management systems, we have ERPs, we have more data than ever before. And now, and I don't know how this works, you do, and maybe you can explain this. Now they say we have BI and that which tells us what just happened. And we have some insights that you and I could look at and say, I think going forward, there's, we can make these changes. But now we're saying we can use AI to make, to predict the future. And that is, am I right to say that there's a whole bunch of scenario planning based on that data? Is that how AI is making that happen? Absolutely. So AI looks at the looks at the time series of what happened, you know, years ago. And the reason that it can do so so well is because of the computing power. We have immense computing power. And you can look at what was the weather at the time? What was the, uh, the situation, the Mexican borders? What was the, were there any floods? What was the, the speed limit on the high? Lots of factors. And say, okay, given all this, this is what was going on with the transportation system, given manufacturing, given the economy, given whatever. You know, lots of factors. But look him over time and see how it progresses. So we can make inferences now. We say, okay, this is the situation that we are in now. We have all this data and we can start forecasting. And this, by the way, is by some, some people think the number one application of current AI models. It's being able to project forward what might happen. So yes, absolutely, it's the case. And by the way, during the pandemic, we all found out we had a pretty good supply chain. None of us starved to death. In fact, some of us gained weight, which is not your grandparents or great-grandparents pandemic. It was obviously unpleasant, and we all know people who died. We didn't want that, but we had supply chains that held up pretty well. But it was some front-page news. I've heard people talk about how the use of digital twins could help us not necessarily predict the next pandemic, but predict weak spots in our supply chain. So talk about that for a minute. Okay, just to understand what, what digital twins are. When you have an asset, you can have a representative, a digital representation of this asset. We could have this before. Simulation model always existed. What we do now is the asset, let's say it's a jet engine, may have lots and lots of sensor in it that could continue sense, send data to the digital twins. So the digital twin will be always up to date exactly what is happening with this with this machine with this asset give you the best example of digital twins that you are using every day and, and you don't even know it do you use google map yes yes you want to go from a to b okay there's the infrastructure which is a physical thing and there's google map which is a digital representation and you work on the digital representation and when there's congestion on the real thing it sends signals to the digital thing. So the digital thing is always up to date. That's a classic digital twin. But we don't think about it because it is, we didn't call it by name, where nobody got excited. It's a digital twin. 
a few years ago, probably three, four, five years ago, I was traveling a lot and I came back and I, I paid off my credit card balance. I probably got an expense check and I paid off my credit card balance. And then like the next day I got an increase in my credit card. And, and I was thinking, why did that happen so quickly? And so I mentioned it and somebody said, well, they have a AI as a model and Capital One or whatever card it was, they have a model for you. And I said, so AI gave me that increase? They said, yeah. And by the way, would AI, if if you had to get the committee together and say, we're going to give Joe Lynch an increase, that you wouldn't increase it three grand. You'd increase it $100, $500 because you're risk adverse. AIs does, they, they have risk aversion, but they look and say, that's, we gave them three grand because it's no big deal. And I had no idea. That was five, seven years ago. Let me tell you something. If you, I'm not going to mention the company, there are certain insurance company, you have an accident to your car. What they ask you is just to take a picture of the, uh, of the dents to your car. What happened to your car? Without human intervention, it will be analyzed. They, they know which car it is. They know the year. They know how much it's going to cost to fix it. And they immediately tell you, this is, you know, $575 that go to Josh. You can go to one of the three mechanics in your neighborhood and they'll fix it for this price. No person involved in this. By the way, I heard this recently and it was a friend of mine from one of the large automotive companies. I think it's, well, I'll just say it's General Motors OnStar. So I heard somebody say, when there's an accident with a car that has OnStar, they know the severity of the accidents better than the people who are arriving from the hospital with the ambulance. So when the ambulance get there and they say, it looks like it was this severe, we have to take this person, they predict the injuries better than the ambulance arriving. You know why? Because they measure the acceleration. And all the hard points. The world. They know what for this. You know, and know the hard points. They know what happens. If They know if the bag was deployed or not deployed. They know they know all this. And they have data on all, all kinds of stuff, from insurance institute, from others. They, they know that this kind of deceleration, which is what happened in an accident, will cause you this type. So they, they can approximate. They can estimate what will be the uh It's the very interesting. Um, before the pandemic maybe years ago, if you go on, on YouTube and look up Bill Gates talking about the pandemic, he gave a TED talk years ago talking about I'd, he said, we're susceptible to a worldwide pandemic and we need to worry about it. He said it could be very costly to the world's economy. We could lose a lot of people, blah, blah, blah. He talked about it and very smart man. This was years before the pandemic. That's why I never been blaming him for stupid stuff. But I don't think you and I have to predict the next pandemic. If we're looking at supply chains, if we can take our digital twin and say, hey, we ran, we're always running scenarios and we're constantly identifying weak spots in our supply chain before it even happens. So you said, what if we increase production 10%? You say, oh, well, we found out our warehouses would have this failure and our logistics provider would have this failure and our retail stores would have this problem. Of course. Of course. I, I don't know. Have you ever interviewed anybody from Flex? Yes. Yes. I just interviewed Carl, the founder, co-founder. So Fle Flex. No, no, no. I'm not talking about F-L-E-X-E. -E. I'm talking about the F-L-E-X, Flextronics. It used to be called Flextronics. Oh, oh, oh no. I haven't been, I'd love to interview them. They built what is really a digital twin of the entire worldwide supply chain, which is quite amazing. 
and they you see in real time what's happening across the globe it gives you it gives you an idea that is increasingly important we all know we have still the problem going on in the ukraine and russia so suddenly companies said i no longer can receive this or nor do i want to receive this from russia and we have interruptions in supply chain in the ukraine by the way the fertilizer shortage is probably across the whole planet right now there's parts of china that we don't want to work with because they're using uyghur slave labor and those are increasingly not just suggestions by the government those are those are mandates by the government and if you have large supply chains it's hard to know where your tier 4 supplier got their their stuff i think ai is one of those potential solutions that can help us identify some of these challenges maybe look ai works very well if you get the data The problem is if if this supplier oh, yeah. <laughs> masks where they're getting the stuff you need the data AI cannot generate the data it can analyze it can make a conclusion it can work with it but you need the data and and yeah, fact, well, the o- fact, the ocean data might tell me <laughs> yeah in fact interestingly in terms of uh, you know the basic machine learning is you train on huge amount of data like chatgpt on all the stuff that's being written on the internet and then it can generate its own the chinese government is now is by the way is the most extreme in regulating generative ai because they are afraid that people will start saying the chinese government is not the best thing since sliced bread but you know what they control they control the training data you can train it only on on approved data so it doesn't go off the rail By the way this is this is a big problem. I read oh well, Peter Zion a geopolitical guy he also wrote, wrote a book called The End of the World is Just Beginning. He said that Russia uses a lot of disinformation. They always have going back all the way to the USSR and he said they provide most of the fracking anti-fracking stuff that the West consumes. And he said why? Cuz they're they sell oil. So they so they want us to stop fracking. Germany stopped fracking the United States is trying to end fracking in many locations and where's that data come from from a source that is um has an advantage if if we stop fracking they they sell more more stuff to us so Germany used to do 50% of their own natural gas now they're 5% where they get the others they were getting it from Russia who guarantees doesn't care about the environment they don't care about humanity at this one minute not all the russian people of course and Recently, I saw that Quora, which a lot of us who go on Quora, a lot of good conversations, Chinese governments recognized this is a great place for us to use our propaganda. The challenge we have is when this AI goes out into the internet and grabs up what is propaganda. To your point, that doesn't know until you tell it. some of the stuff coming out of these countries is propaganda. Well, a, a large part, not only some part. Yes. <laughs> And so you need some human in there to say, "Hey, AI, let me teach you something." <laughs> uh, no, absolutely. That's what I mean by guardrail and starting so, to So, uh, so getting yeah. back to your book, we've gone all over the place. Your book is Supply Chain AI and the Future of Work. You see who's who should be reading this book besides all my listeners who care about the future of supply chains well the book is written for people who are interested in supply chain but have but are not it's not for chief supply chain officer they know the stuff it's for people who are interested in understanding supply chain what are the challenges for supply chain that used to be just reduce cost and 
increased customer service. Now you have to deal with resilience, you have to do with sustainability, you have to deal with a lot of other I think all at the same time, and these objectives sometimes compete with each other. It's vast. It goes all over, you know, the world. Technology is changing it, changing it in interesting way. There were many areas in the supply chain where people are anxious about the technology taking jobs. I'm talking about what works, what doesn't work. I do think that one of the things we can hang our hat on is history, and historically, Every technology created more jobs than, than jobs were lost. And, and look, I'm not trying to minimize. Some jobs were lost. You know, we don't have any more elevator operators. We don't have any, you know, have any more. Lots of jobs, we don't, don't have them anymore because there's no need for them. But many, many other jobs were created. So, so, so I'm talking about the arc of where, where technology and AI in particular is leading. So anybody interested in these issues, but... I should say the book is written in a very, in a level that should be approachable to anybody. My wife enjoys it, and she, my wife, can add, cannot add two numbers without making a mistake. <laughs> so it's, uh, it, it's, it's not for the techie. It's for anybody who's just interested and curious. But you said it's called the, the Magic Conveyor is the top, top title? The Magic Conveyor Belt. Talk about the Magic Conveyor Belt that brings stuff from any part of the world to any other part of the world, you know, the supply chain. It's, it's, it's funny you should say it that way because I recently started saying the supply chain is the outdoor factory. And we always had control of our factory, yes. the inputs, the, what, the processes, and hopefully the outputs. And then the factory, I'm not saying it's easy. Running a factory is always going to be difficult to some extent. But now we have this the outdoor factory or the magic conveyor belt that stretches across the coal globe. But we still want to have certain inputs, certain processes, and get the proper outputs. And it's challenging because there's thousands of miles, dozens of countries, cultures, country, you know, different customs. It's not easy in the outdoor factory. <laughs> Absolutely, and, 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 and many, many partners of, over whom you have little control. So they just do what they do. Just last week, we saw Iran seize a boat of oil. And, and this is, this is yeah. um, by the way, okay. this is not going to happen less in the future. This is going to happen more. And again, I think most of us who are, have children say, yeah, I don't want my child fighting for a war that has nothing to do with me or this country. And these are these are the things that we're all going to have to deal with. And, and and by the way, if you were to tell me as a teenager that I would have to worry about supply chains in Iran and China and all these, you'd say, not in a million years. I, I we didn't care. We didn't know. I can say this as somebody who grew up in the United States, and I'm a baby boomer. We didn't care about the outside world because when you looked at the rest of the world, they didn't have, they weren't developed after World War II. 80% of the production on the planet was here. So we weren't looking outward. And uh, we were looking inward because that was the only market. Why, why bother with Mexico? Well, now we, now we know why we should bother with all these other countries. So, you see, I've gone way over my time with you. I hope I don't lose you. So, um, yeah, I like to interview smart, interesting people like you, people who are killing it in the space. Who else should I interview? Who do you recommend? Several people. My good friend, Howley in Stanford. Howley is a professor in Stanford, just retired, so he must, he has time. 
What does he? What does he do? Supply chain management and uh, value chain management. There's a guy here called uh, Josue Velasquez at MIT, and he. You're gonna have to spell that one for me. <laughs> Josue Velasquez. <laughs> oh, Jose. Okay, I got no, 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 no. It, it's not know. Jose. It's Josue. Josue. J O S U E. All right, close enough. I can get that. J O S U E. Josue Velasquez. But I'll spell Velasquez. Just a minute. I don't want to make a mistake. I can spell that one. <laughs> Velasquez. V e l a z q u e z. We're getting good at the Hispanic names here in the United States. He's doing a, a very interesting work on uh, sustainability. Very interesting work. Uh, another guy here that does interesting work on trucking is uh, David Correll. C o r r e l l. He's doing interesting work in trucking. Yeah, some some of the things. Excellent, excellent. Well, those are three good ones. I will reach out. I might need to. I need, might need an email address if you have them for some of those guys. But I appreciate that. And before we wrap this up, how, how do we get your book again? What's the name of it again? Okay. The book is called The Magic Conveyor Belt, and you can get an idea how to get just if you just the the URL is magicbelt.mit.edu. If you just look at magicbelt.mit.edu. I'll put a link in the show notes so you guys don't have to write that down. I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile. I'll put a link to your show. And, your and, and, and from there, you can go to Amazon. You can go to Google. You can go to a Apple. You can buy Barnes & Noble. You can buy it in lots of places. The easiest is probably Amazon because they have the three. They have the hardcover, the softcover, and the ebook. I like it. What I'll do is, um, if you have an author's page, I know oh, you've yeah. written nine books, so we'll put, put that author's page, I'll put that link in the show notes too, so people can reach out and talk to you. And um, yeah, one, one more time about the program that you guys have over at MIT also, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So we have a, a master program and we have several PhD students, but the main program is the master program. It's a one-year program that has two parts. Some Half of it is residential. People come from one year to MIT, one academic year. And half of it is people who take the, core, the, the first semester basically online and then come for the second semester in MIT and get a master within one semester. So the, and by the way, this, this, is, this program is different. Most people would say, I can't get into MIT. How would I no, go to this? No, it has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with it. The program is for anybody who wants to get some understanding and some expertise in supply chain management. So we do cover how to do forecasting, how to do inventory optimization, how to design networks, stuff like this. But there's both, you know, hard part and soft part. And it's a set, as I say, of five courses that are free. The knowledge is free. You just go online to the MIT Center for Transportation Logistics. You can go to the online courses. The knowledge is absolutely free. If you want a certificate, you have to pay. I think I don't remember. It's two or three hundred dollars per one per course for the five courses. And you can get what they call that's a MicroMasters. It's called a MicroMaster certificate. And then if you want a full master's from MIT, you have to go on to on campus for one semester. But either one's a fantastic deal. And again, and 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 by the way, not only at MIT, there are about twenty other universities who accept this, and you can go there for one semester. Oh, that's nice. So you mean I could do online for a year or take those five classes and then take it at, say, University of Michigan by my house? If if University of Michigan is, I don't remember who is a partner in this, but the reason that we talk to other universities is because there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of people taking these courses and we are afraid we can take only 40 a year. 
We're afraid there'll be, you know, a demonstration in front of the president of MIT. So we, we had to, because we have such low capacity, so we had to get other universities so people who want it can get it as well. And there are, by the way, some international universities, university, our, our center in Malaysia, our center in, uh, in, in Spain, they're all, they're all taking people for, for this program. It's funny, I joke about this, and it's a whole other topic, but I went to University of Michigan, and I love it. I went to night school. But the idea that they say, well, we only accept four-point students now. You have four-point, and you have to be able to play in a symphony orchestra and run a 4440. It's nonsense when I think the charter of the school from the beginning was to educate everybody. Not just the people who got four-point coming out of high school and, get, and, and have all these skills. They're going to be okay. The rest of us need an education too. <laughs> but 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 you know where it's coming. It's coming from the fact that school competes with each other for ranking, for rating, and they, you know if you get good if you, it's yeah, like one effect, right. you get good input in, you'll get good input out. You cannot screw them enough during during the four years. So it's a so you want the good one. <laughs> I have I have a nephew and he's going to apply at MIT and the University of Michigan and that top schools. And I, I I've been telling him I said. You're already successful. You're a fantastic student. You're a bright young man. You'll be fine. I said, and all these universities that are, one, one will pick you, they're just saying that we're, they're hooking themselves onto your, onto your wings here. You're, you're going to be successful. And they would like to say, well, he was successful because he came here. You were successful coming out of high school. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Anyway, thank you so much, Yossi. I really appreciate you taking the time. What I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, link to any links you give me, including your, your excellent program and your new book. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'll, I'll have to do it later, to, very late tonight because I, I, I have to run to other stuff. Okay. I, do, thank you. Do I, have your, do I have your email? Yeah, I'll send you an email. Thank you. Sheffy at MIT.edu. Just send me an email. Thank you so much. See you. Thank you. All right. and, and thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.